there are often times where I will go uh, as uh, you know, as an individual or will go as a staff, have a happy hour with the Democratic staff. That is enduring. I can only imagine that if we're doing that as a professional staff um, and, and, we, and we really do respect each other and, and really do have a common sense of mission, if we're doing that, I imagine that there is some of that going on at the, at the member level as well. Welcome to the Policy Vets podcast, engaging with leaders, scholars, and strong voices to fill a void in support of policy development for America's veterans. With your hosts, former Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dr. David Shulkin, and former Executive Director of the American Legion, Lou Chelley. Today's guest is the Minority Staff Director for the Senate Committee on Veterans Affairs, John Towers. I am really looking forward to speaking with John Tower today. You know, as staff director of, of HVAC, you must have worked with him when you were secretary. Yeah, I sure did, Lou. He was one of those quiet guys, but you always knew that he did his homework. And he was a straight shooter, not one of those guys that would try to surprise you all the time. No, absolutely. I, I used to work with him, and I can tell you that I always knew where we stood when I left the conversation. Uh, we didn't always agree. But uh, it was always polite, and at least we knew that there were things that we needed to work on together, and he was always willing to come to the table to do that. You know, one of the reasons I'm so glad we're going to have a chance to talk to John is because after you work in D.C. a while, you learn that it's really the staff that runs these committees. And if you have staff that know what they're doing, who do their homework, you have committee members that come in who are prepared with really good questions. And if you have bad staff, you can see the results of that, too. Yeah, it's just like any organization, you know, the staff really do the work. Yeah, someone as experienced as John Towers behind the scenes is really important to have good policy in Washington. You know, understanding what's on his mind and what issues he's tracking is going to be important to a lot of people. I couldn't agree more, Lou. So let's see what he really has on his mind. Okay, here we go. Today, we're speaking with John Towers. John, welcome to Policy Vets. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. John, it's really great to have you here today. And first of all, congratulations on your new position. You just don't send in your resume and get selected for the staff director of the Senate minority. So for the listeners who don't know about you, tell us about your path and getting to your current position. Sure, absolutely. I had the good fortune of starting here on the Senate committee back in 1997. So in many Respects. This is a homecoming uh, for me of sorts. Began my career here, uh, served for 11 years on the Senate VA committee. Uh, I'm sorry, 14 years on the Senate VA committee before then uh, shifting over to the House Veterans Affairs Committee back in 2011. Served there for 10 years. And that, at that point, that's when I ascended to uh, the staff director position under first Chairman Jeff Miller and then uh, was fortunate to be retained by um, uh, Dr. Phil Rowe. Um, and then recently, as, as good fortune would have it, the, the good senator from Kansas asked me to, um, uh, to come, over, come home back to the Senate. So I started my career with Arlen Specter, who's from Russell, Kansas. So, so from one Kansan to, uh, to another, I've uh, continued my career here. So very grateful. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a great career. And, you know, I think people don't recognize the continuity that exists at the staff level, that 
think about the differences. I knew Arlen Specter because he was my senator in Pennsylvania. And uh, think about the differences of the people that have led in the veterans community from the elected officials. But you've been behind the scenes being that consistent voice and consistent um, level of understanding of these issues. And that's why I think so many people have tapped you into these roles. So it's really important that our listeners understand that people like you are really standing behind these committees. So thanks for thanks for a great dedicated public service that you've been providing. Well, thank you. It's 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 a privilege. I'm very humbled to continue this work. So thank you. So, you know, John to to continue on that, you've spent your entire career serving veterans with veterans issues. I mean, is there some connection that you have that makes veterans important to you? Uh, there is. My grandfather was a World War II vet, but more immediately I was raised by my stepfather, who was a career Marine combat Vietnam vet. So, you know, we were a military family, did a couple of uh, hardship post tours in Hawaii uh, before settling in Northern Virginia. So, you know, that was my most immediate experience to military service and the importance of family in military service. And then when I began my career uh, shortly after my uh, brother joined Marine Reserves in the middle of the Iraq conflict and was called up and deployed. So those have been really, you know, always in the back of my mind as I've gone through my career and worked through various policy issues. So, uh, you know, I I do not have military service, but I have a uh, enduring appreciation for those who have served, like I said earlier, just considered an honor to be able to come to here to work in our nation's capital every day for what I believe is the best mission of all, in all of government. So, John, uh, I always find that when people have that personal connection, then it's meaningful to them, particularly when it goes back to family, it really does make a difference. So thank you for your service and continuing to advocate for our veterans. You had mentioned coming to work every day at, at uh, the Capitol. Were you at the Capitol on January 6th when when all the problems happened? Where were you? I was. I was in the um, Russell uh, Senate office building. Uh, that was the day after the Georgia elections, at which I learned I would no longer be in the majority. And, you know, we got all of these alerts from Capitol Police that some of the office buildings on the House side were beginning to go in lockdown. And, and you know, something just clicked in my head that eh, probably a good idea if I got out. And so I left, fortunately, right before the entire complex was locked down and, and got home safely. Now, that was uh, that was unique in my experience up here, that's for sure, and the nation. A scary time, but also showing that you have a good sense of judgment, and that's important in surviving in Washington these days. You know, you you also mentioned, John, that You've had the opportunity to work both on the House side and the Senate side. You've worked in the minority and the majority. How different is it when you work on the House side versus the Senate side? And how different is it to work in the minority and the majority? So generally, uh, the House and the Senate, because of the, the rules in each body, um, operate very differently. Uh, the rules in the House are intended to ensure that a majority, whoever the majority party is or whichever the majority party is, can can essentially get through their version of policy. The rules in the Senate 
and and this is caught up in the debate on the filibuster and whether it should stay or go. Um, but the rules in the Senate are geared more towards a more deliberative approach to legislation. And how that translates to what we do is that the lion's share of our work in the Senate and even in the House is governed by really consensus and unanimous consent. There simply isn't enough time in, 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 a, in an annual calendar to take up every single veterans bill, have robust debate, amendment debate. And so a lot of the work that we do happens behind the scenes. Consensus is reached and bills clear in the Senate by unanimous consent, whereas in the House, you know, they're typically brought up under what they call suspension of the rules, where still consensus between majority and minority party that this is bipartisan legislation that ought to advance. But beyond that, if there is a contentious issue, the House can really assert its will and limit amendment debate, limit amendment consideration entirely. So the majority in the House really does have a lot of power, whereas the minority does not. In the Senate, you know, the minority, so long as it's a minority of at least 41 right now, has a considerable say in what happens in the Senate. So one thing I don't want to get lost in all of this conversation is your career. I mean, you've got 25 years serving veterans in Congress. There are very few people that that can talk about having that type of robust history. So, you know, I want to ask you a couple of things. First, a lot of people talk about how, uh, you know, when the legislative process grinds on it, it's like watching sausages being made. Um, I, can you take us through what happens between the time that a lawmaker has an idea, whether they get it from a constituent or whether they get it from, uh, you know, advocates in the community and how that process turns into something that lands on the, de- on the, on the desk of the president? Sure. No, it's a great question. And really, the ideas happen in a multitude of ways. So you sometimes have ideas that are born from oversight, either a media investigation. And I think uh, the, the brightest example of that was in 2014, in April of 2014, CNN, working with the House Veterans Committee, uncovered a wait time scandal at the Phoenix VA and then discovered that some of the some of the problems that existed at Phoenix existed in other medical centers across the country. And in a, just a short three month period, that oversight and the concern that veterans were on waiting lists, waiting to get in for care, translated into a very significant legislative enactment, the Choice Act, uh, which gave veterans in certain circumstances the ability to seek care outside of the VA system. Um, so, you know, that's one method. Another method is you have members and staff that talk to constituents, either constituents you just call in to the committee suite, uh, members who are in their home states or home districts and they're talking with veterans, you know, could be at the airport, they're flying to D.C., could be at a um, at a town hall. Uh, an example of this, most recently, Senator Moran was uh, touring a couple of the medical centers out in Kansas and had conversations with veterans about their reluctance to be vaccinated. And he asked, well, why? And they said, well, well, my spouse is not eligible to be vaccinated yet. And so, therefore, I have a reluctance of leaving my family unit behind uh, in this effort. Senator Rank came back to D.C. and worked with uh, Senator Tester, the chairman of the committee, in order to allow eligibility not just for uh, more veterans to be vaccinated, but also spouses of veterans. And I think VA is announcing today that they've 
that they're fully implementing that law. And so that is a, that is hot off the presses. Um, but I, I would say that most of our work comes from that type of of grassroots, real-world examples of veterans who are struggling, the system is not working for them, and they either contact through veterans organizations, through their elected representatives, through the VA, um, and say, I've got a problem, this is not working for me, and the ideas percolate up, the best ideas percolate up that way. John, that announcement about spouses being able to get vaccinated VAs is now public, and I have to tell you, uh, congratulations on that. I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. And one of the tremendous parts of the VA being such a large health system is their ability to help uh, citizens in time of a national public health emergency. And this is a great example. Um, you also mentioned about the wait time issue. Of course, that that turned out to fundamentally change and reshape the way that the VA delivers health care. Are you at all concerned with the pandemic that we've gotten back into a situation where we have to look again at the wait time, given all the delayed care that happened over this past year? Well, that's our big oversight issue now. We just got through a debate on the American Rescue Plan and $17 billion was appropriated to VA. Uh, the lion's share of it devoted to medical care in anticipation of what uh, Dr. Stone referred to as a bow wave of demand that has been pent up from veterans who have deferred or delayed their care. And so that is something that we'll be uh, certainly watching in in the months ahead, how significant is that pent-up demand? Uh, what are the consequences of it on wait times at VA medical centers? How does that translate into use of community care? So those are those are all things that are hot on uh, our oversight agenda. Great. Well, that those are important issues. Thank you. You know, it seems like over the twenty-five years that you've been working in on Capitol Hill, that the environment's clearly gotten more partisan. And over those years, there must have been times when it's easier for members to work together and other times where it seems like it's been harder. When it comes to veterans issues, do you think we still have bipartisanship? I, I do. I think that we are still um, an oasis in the Congress of bipartisanship. And, you know, what I can point to as evidence of that are some of the really significant legislative enactments that uh, have occurred in the last several years, even in the midst of what has been a really um, partisan and, as you mentioned, even a more growing uh, time of partisanship, veterans legislation and comity on veterans issues is is something that I still see on a day-to-day basis. Are there the occasional... um, Occasional things where there's disagreement within members of the committee, absolutely. But by and large, I think the members are reflective of where the public is on veterans' issues. Whether you're a conservative, a moderate, a liberal, the public expects these members to uh, do what's right for those who've served, irrespective of how you feel about the conflict. And I think that has translated into our legislative success. And that's, you know, that that's the primary reason why this has been the career that it has for me. I don't think I would have enjoyed working um, 
for, uh, in this space for as long as I have, if there wasn't that common belief and that common mission that we have still hung on to. Well, I think that's really good to hear. And, and, uh, you know, I've certainly experienced that myself, that people in Congress, I think, try to do the right thing when it comes to veterans issues and put aside those partisan issues. You know, we're, we're not, of course, in the congressional hearing today. So you can tell us, uh, some things that maybe you wouldn't normally. So just just for people to get a sense, when when you're not in a hearing or the members are off camera, are there really some friendships and social time that Democrats and Republicans spend together? Do they do they actually have some fun and enjoy each other and develop relationships? Or is the environment so tough right now that what we used to see in the past just doesn't happen. You know, you know, I, I can't really comment on the member level social interaction, but I can comment on staff level interaction. Mm-hmm. You know, there are often times where I will go uh, as uh, as an individual, or will go as a staff, have a happy hour with the Democratic staff. That is enduring. And, uh, you know, and I can only imagine that if we're doing that as a professional staff um, and, and we and we really do respect each other and and really do have a common sense of mission. If we're doing that, I imagine that there is some of that going on at the at the member level as well. And these members, you know, while they might may not be best of friends, truly do respect each other. And their default is one of not questioning the other's motives. Um, you know, there, there has been a lot of turnover in Congress. And I think to go to your question as to why things may be more partisan now, um, you know, when I first started in the late nineties, there were senators who had been here for two, three decades, uh, legends, uh, Senator Kennedy, Senator, uh, Ted Stevens from Alaska, Senator Biden, who at that point had been there for two, uh, you know, almost three decades. So, Senator and Senator Specter. I mean, I can rattle off the names of folk of these members who had been here for two, three decades and had formed really close relationships with each other. I think there's been a lot more turnover, and and so and it just takes a little bit of time to uh, to get to know colleagues and and um, you know establish those good working relationships. But in in our committee, like I said earlier, uh, we've been fortunate that uh, we've been isolated in terms of that partisan rancor. Well, John, I, I don't have the same rich history, you know, working in this field as you do, but I've been around a while. Uh, can you can you tell me about any particular bills that come to mind that were particularly difficult getting? Yes, the line? I, mean, I mentioned earlier that the lion's share of our work is done by unanimous consent. However, when you see that there is a recorded vote on any of our legislation, that's when you know that it was much more difficult to get across the uh, the finish line. And one um, element that I can point to of the Mission Act, which was enacted in, in 2018, was a part of the Mission Act called the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission. This is a so the AIR Act. This is something that uh, right. was the yeah. brainchild of Dr. Rowe. That wasn't his brainchild. Actually, he got it from a commission recommendation, uh, but he was the lead advocate in the entire Congress thinking it was a good idea to do a nationwide assessment of VA's aging infrastructure, changing demographics, 
how we've integrated community care and do an assessment of where do we need to build new facilities? Where do we need to downsize perhaps, realign? Um, and we followed a process in that bill that was uh, based on a Department of Defense BRAC process. And so using that same process has a negative common connotation for many. And so right off the bat, there was uh, suspicion as to what the motive here was. And so, you know, getting over those initial suspicions, working with veterans organizations. I know, Lou, we talked with you and the Legion um, ad nauseum about it. Dr. Rowe called I, every I veterans organization. Yeah. He called every member of the committee in. He, he walked over to the Senate and talked to skeptical senators that, you know, although the process is like a BRAC, the outcome is not like a BRAC. For a, for a military base that is BRAC'd, there is nothing left behind. For uh, a potential closure of a facility, there is going there are going to be services left behind for veterans in that community, either a, a community-based clinic, a healthcare center, uh, enhanced community care relationships, um, or, or you know if the facility is not closed, could be a new facility. I mean, we really did not prejudge the outcome on any of this. So I would say in my recent experience, that was one where it took a little bit longer to uh, convince folks of the wisdom of moving forward with it. And and there was a, a roll call vote in the House and there was in the Senate and there were there were no votes. Um, so it was it was, you know, a, a tougher a sled to get to get past the, the finish line. I absolutely remember that conversation. Uh, you know, sometimes when you get called into the boss's office, it's like going into the principal's office. Right. Um, <laughs> but in this case, you know, it really wasn't. And, and it really never was that way uh, with Chairman Rowe. He was always very amicable and just wanted to get to, you know, the the heart and the root of the issue and make sure that advocates understood. So how important is it to work with groups like, you know, the VSOs and constituents, groups and organizations like Policy Vets? How does that help the process that you and lawmakers have to go through? Well, that is all the time we have today. Listen next week as John Towers tells us what he and Senator Moran really think about VA Secretary McDonough. Thanks for listening to the Policy Vets podcast. For more information about projects and other podcasts, go to policyvets.org.